Welcome to the Unspeakable Podcast. I'm your host, Megan Daum. If you are sick of wellness, which is to say if you are terrorized by your Fitbit, guilt-tripped by half the items in your refrigerator the way I am, maybe even broke from trying every new juice cleanse or fitness boutique class that comes along, this week's guest will make you feel better. She is Rena Raphael, and she has a new book out called The Gospel of Wellness, Gyms, Gurus, Goop, and the Promise of Self-Care. Now, Rena is maybe not your typical unspeakable guest. She's not full of dangerous ideas or anything like that. But she had the courage to look at not just the wellness industry, but at the whole concept of fitness and wholeness and things like clean eating and point out the hypocrisies within those things. She's been a journalist covering health and fitness for a long time. And in this conversation, we talk about the way healthy living has become a lifestyle brand. She talks about her own obsessive patterns when it comes to diet and exercise, especially in the past. I explain why I have never eaten an entire donut. I break off a tiny piece and throw it out and eat the rest of the donut. We talk about the meaninglessness of the term natural, the way women sometimes turn to self-care when they feel let down by the actual healthcare system, and how thinking too much about being healthy can sometimes make you quite sick. So here is our conversation. Rena Raphael, welcome to The Unspeakable. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. There is so much to talk about in this book, The Gospel of Wellness, Jim's Guru's Goop, and The False Promise of Self-Care. And we're going to get to a lot of it. But I thought we would just open this conversation with you reading a brief passage from, it's actually chapter nine of the book. And it has to do with exercise, which is one of many, many things that you cover in this book. But I just think this is kind of a remarkable passage and it would set the stage for what we're going to talk about. So could you just kind of dive in? My pleasure. And we should say the name of this chapter is You're Not Working Hard Enough. At Con Body, a prison yard-themed boutique gym run by ex-convicts in New York, there is no rest for the weary. In this intense cardio class, I and my fellow gym rats worked diligently using only our body weight, just like prisoners do. It was all part of the theme. In the basement-level space, mugshot pronounced of celebrities, O.J. Simpson, Jaja Gabor, and three of Lindsay Lohan, lined the entrance hall. At the end of the hall, a metal gate featured a graphic of barbed wire. Further in, a cement wall fenced in the check-in desk. Con Body offers an inmate experience for young professionals intrigued by prison. Their clients watched Orange is the New Black or Prison Break and are, by the gym founder's account, curious what lockup feels like. The trends only got tougher. I also tried out trampoline cardio, aquacycling, which is soul cycle but in waist deep water, and super cold hit workouts stationed in giant bespoke walk in refrigerators. By early 2020, I found myself in a Tribeca fitness studio that specialized in electrical muscle stimulation. I took a high impact cardio class where I had to wear a power suit, much like a wetsuit, that emitted electric shocks to cause involuntary muscle contractions. Throughout the workout, an instructor would press a button that sent electrical currents through my body, paralyzing me in my tracks as I tried to complete a burpee. 
Each time I was zapped, it felt like I had suffered a heart attack. I thought, this is all gotten insane. I'm getting nearly electrocuted or literally pretending to be so fit as to survive prison life. I can't work this hard. The physical activity guidelines for Americans recommend at least 150 minutes a week of moderate aerobic activity, like brisk walking, pushing a lawnmower, or 75 minutes of rigorous aerobic activity, like running or swimming laps, with two days of muscle strengthening activities, like lifting weights, power yoga. So when did we decide that the average Joe needs to exercise like an American gladiator? Why does it feel like everything requires so much effort? Or perhaps a better question is, why do we feel the need to work so hard? Okay, thank you. I have to say, I've heard of a lot of workout uh, brands and regimens, but con body was new to me. Work, work out like a prisoner. <laughs> How Was that something you were familiar with before, or did you stumble upon that in the course of your research? Well, I was a wellness industry reporter for several years, so it was my job to seek out these new trends and hot new gym spaces and whatever it is. So I reported on it for Fast Company magazine, and it was quite a trip. I mean, it was fun. It was entertaining, but you know, I'm someone who considers myself quite fit, and I, I couldn't keep up. Yeah. So I, I, this is this book is really well researched. I mean, you, it's not surprising you are a reporter. You're approaching this like a reporter, but it's also clear that you have a personal investment in this. You have an interest in this. You're interest. You're interested in wellness. So how much of this came about because of your own quest? I mean, you're talking about this kind of strain, this is irony that has emerged, like it's become unfashionable to talk about things like dieting or, you know, the kind of old fashioned notions of thinness or, you know, what we used to associate with like eating rice cakes and doing aerobics and that kind of thing. And now it's about eating clean and about wellness in general. But were you a customer of this stuff as much as an observer? Oh, totally. I was a huge wellness devotee. And in fact, the reason I became a wellness industry reporter is because I tried out all these trends myself out of interest because I wanted to be super healthy. And when I moved from New York to LA, and LA is kind of like ground zero for wellness, uh, at a certain point, my pitches started to reflect my metamorphosis. So I started pitching my magazine more and more wellness trends to the point where we finally decided, you know what, I should cover this full time. So this book really comes from both approaches, from my personal approach of being a wellness devotee and what that did to me, but also what I saw when I covered this industry over time. When I got to see all of the marketing plans, when I interviewed these founders, when I checked the claims with scientists and medical researchers. So it's really the professional and the personal coming together. And what's the time frame here? Like what year did you move to LA? When did you start to notice a real shift in this industry? I would say around 2013, 2014 is when we saw a really big interest within wellness. Uh, that's when you started seeing a lot of attention given to certain boutique gyms. Uh, you also saw athleisure wear getting very, very popular. Granted, it didn't start then. 
at all. Uh, but that's when I really saw a craze emerging and the average woman, like all of your friends suddenly, your boss, your coworkers, talking about everything they were doing for their wellness. And even the terminology people were using was changing. Suddenly you started hearing people saying things like, I'm doing this for my self-care or uh, I'm practicing gratitude or let me meditate on that. Like almost as if the culture was changing. And why did you think that was? Was there something, Was did it have to do with what was going on in their lives or were they just following trends? Like what did you think was beneath all of it? Well, there's a lot of reasons why wellness took off. And by the way, it didn't start in 2014. A lot of these trends have their roots in the 60s. And even something like boutique gyms really erupted, I'd say, in 2002, 2003. So I don't want to make it seem like it started in 2014. But I will say that I saw many women looking for solutions. They felt overburdened, stressed, anxious. And here came this industry promising them solutions. If you're tired, take the supplement. Uh, if you're lonely, go to a boutique gym and see all these people. Uh, you're stressed, download this meditation app. So I, I understood why women were doing that. But within this book, I really wanted to understand what women were feeling that was really spurring this change. And what were they actually hoping to get out of wellness? And lastly, was wellness actually helping them? or potentially just adding more pressures. Yeah. And, you know, I have to say, I was really moved by the first chapter. I mean, I know you're not this, you're not writing any of this to tug at our heartstrings, but the first chapter is called, Why the Hell is the Advice Always Yoga? <laughs> and I have to say, I hate yoga. I am a Pilates person and I do bar. And, and the, actually one of the great moments of my life was when I had, of course, a Pilates trainer tell me that it was actually bad for me to do yoga because I was hyperextensive. Like I was too flexible and somehow like I was becoming less strong. She, of, of course she was trying to sell her Pilates training. So of course she's going to say that, but, um, there is something sort of tyrannical about yoga. Um, but more importantly, you talk about just these levels of stress that women are experiencing that are unprecedented. And it's, it's easy to talk about this in a, like a reductive way, you know, that it's the, it's the, the, the economy or it's the way that, you know, child, we don't have enough childcare and et cetera, et cetera. And all those things are true, but I feel like there's, there's something deeper going on here. Like why is everybody so just lacking in the time? Why is there just not enough time? as opposed to how it used to be or the way we think it used to be. Yeah, I mean it's different for each person, but you know, the average woman that I spoke to was burdened by the things you just mentioned that there were not enough childcare policies, they didn't have maternity leave benefits, they still shoulder the burden of child rearing and housework at home. Um they didn't feel like they oftentimes were respected at their jobs. Then you add in all the cultural pressures of you have to be fit, you have to be skinny, you have to be beautiful, you have to be relaxed, you have to be calm, you have to be zen. Uh, then there's also the matter of there are legitimate complaints that women have in America, including the fact that there are women's health conditions that are underfunded and under-researched. A lot of women I spoke to felt gaslit and ignored by their doctors. There are a whole span of issues. So I understand why women are frustrated and they're looking for solutions. The question I have is, 
is wellness, is this popularized idea of self-care, which is really divorced from its more radical and political roots, the answer. And so the chapter is called, Why is the Advice Always Yoga? Because the idea that bubble baths and skincare and facials is going to solve our problems is really laughable. And it's almost condescending. <laughs> it's so quaint, though. It's so, but it's so 80s. It's like, well, first it was like Calgon Take Me Away, right? In the 70s. And then it was, maybe you're too young for that, but that was, yeah. And then in the 80s, there was a lot. There, I feel like there was a lot of bubble bath, like Vita bath was a very <laughs> 80s thing. Yeah. And, and listen, I get it. It's easier to take a bubble bath than to actually demand systemic change or to uh, fight for what we actually need. And America, to some degree, loves a quick fix, especially if it's dolled up in millennial pink branding. We always want to do something that's easier to do. And it's easier to just say, you know what, I'll just relax at home. But interestingly, I think we're seeing, especially coming out of the pandemic, that it's made us lonelier. This idea that if you have a problem, if you're stressed, you should be at home by yourself, meditating alone, on your Peloton alone, taking your bubble bath alone. We're seeing more and more women say, actually, I need to be with people. I need communal support. I need other women. I want to be with my friends. Then the issue is, well, good luck trying to get all your friends together because everyone's working so hard and nobody has time. So there are a bunch of issues and there's no quick fixes for it. Yeah, you know, this this is the passage that really got to me and because it just resonates with me so personally. But you talk about being being a reporter and a, a gig worker. You say as a gig worker taking a vacation or sick leave is out of the question. You aren't paid for any days you aren't working. Thinking about having kids, forget it. You can barely afford 2 weeks off. Who's going to pay for your maternity leave? You know, you're talking about what it's like to work in the media. Okay, I'm just going to read a little bit more because I think this is germane. By 2017, the journalism industry was in free fall as advertising money dried up. I was coming off of previous positions where I saw budgets slashed, reasonable freelance wages disappear, entire teams decimated, site traffic reigned supreme. The sensational trumped the meaningful. Be like, be more like BuzzFeed. We were told, churn, churn, churn. So you had to be a trend spotter, writer, editor, newspaper aficionado, sponsorship deal, creative, contributor, manager, media partner, liaison, social media savant, an entire team in one body. God, I so relate to that. And I know that's not exactly what this book is about, but I feel like what you describe, it could be applied to so many, so many people's work lives. It's not just people in journalism. It's anybody trying to start their own Substack or platform or all these entrepreneurs, all these tech, all these founders, like there's really no reason not to work 24 hours a day. Yeah. Or, you know, now because you can contact anyone via their devices, your boss can ping you at all hours. I mean, I just think things are harder for women today in so to some degree in certain sectors, in certain areas. The idea that we have tech dependence, that we have people pinging us at all hours, um, the fact that our jobs in certain sectors have become more complicated. So yes, I think a lot of women are just exhausted and they're looking for some sort of salvation. And talk about why they're exhausted in different ways than men might be. Right. If we're to believe the survey and polls 
women are more stressed than men are. And again, I don't want to make blanket statements because every woman is individual, but you have a lot of women who are stressed about politics or attacks on reproductive rights. You speak to moms and they'll talk about the second shift, the fact that they're working full time and then they have to do the burden of the housework and they're taking care of the kids and there are no real solid policies, childcare policies, or even great maternity benefits. I, I mean, kind of pick your poison. A lot of women are stressed and even single young women. You know, I speak to a lot of college graduates who are having trouble finding good work. And then they have to deal with dating where it's just people swiping the way to the next best thing. You know, they, they feel like they can't find meaningful relationships. So yeah, there's a lot of complaints from women. Yeah. And I thought it was really interesting what you said about how when men unwind or even exercise, it's like packaged as fun. Like they're exercising for enjoyment. And with women, it's often just part of the set of requirements. It's And it's hardly ever fun. It's grueling and it's competitive and it's more stress. I, I think I was referencing um, a study that showed that women work out more for specific body physique and men maybe work out more for strength or because they enjoy it. I think that was uh, more it. I don't want to say that men don't also have pressures and, and men aren't impacted by, you know, Chris Hemworth's body or something. Um, but yeah, there there is a lot of pressure on women to look a certain way. And there's also pressures on women to act and behave a certain way. I think this idea that women have to be calm and positive and they can't be angry it really has the opposite effect. It makes women furious. And this idea that we're being told to sort of meditate our legitimate complaints away isn't working. And I think people are starting to recognize that. In the course of researching this book, what was the thing that was the most shocking to you or dismaying to you? I think one thing is that we see this sort of inherent messaging within the wellness industry that you always have to be working towards something. You have to constantly be eating nutritious. You have to work out. You have to track your fitness. You have to get the best sleep and wear your little trackers and aura rings, whatever it is. It's become work. It's almost like we're fetishizing health. It's no longer something we're naturally folding into our lives. And of course, this is not for every single woman, but I started seeing people become obsessed with their health to the point where it was harming them. You know, they were terrified of eating processed food. Uh, they were terrified of their body wash giving them cancer. If their kid got sick, they thought it was because they didn't buy the right organic products. This is where I think it can be harmful. Now, it's not harmful for everyone, and this is not obviously a statement on the entire industry. There is real wellness, and then there is the stuff that's being marketed to us. And unfortunately, a lot of the stuff that's being marketed to us is a little misogynistic. You know, I have that line in the book where I say, how come I don't see men terrified of their face wash? Why is it always women? Why are women <laughs> obsessed with you? Because they've been using the same face wash for 30 years. That's true. Yeah, it's just the same shaving cream. But also because that marketing doesn't really work on them. You know, you can try as hard as you want to to make my husband afraid of his deodorant, and I don't think it's going to work. Uh, and, 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 <laughs> don't and make him too afraid of it. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I'm not saying that there aren't issues, you know, let's you know, I bring up the issue of clean beauty. Of course, there have been fiascos and there are issues with certain chemical ingredients. But this idea that you have to be terrified of everything is just so counterproductive. Well, and you have some fascinating interstitials in this book that, you know, go into the history of some of these 
marketing campaigns, you talk, I'm looking now, you talk about how cereals like bran flakes were marketed to parents and mothers suggesting that the reason that their kids were doing badly in school was because they're constipated and they weren't getting enough fiber. So they should buy this cereal. Like, and that was what, like in the thirties? We see this all the time. And I think one of the issues that I've experienced is that the wellness industry is now full of marketers and publicists and influencers who are taking manipulative strategies from the diet, fashion, and beauty industries. And so, yes, you know, in the book, I speak to people like I spoke to a food scientist who told me that they were in marketing meetings at an organic snack brand where the marketers were talking about how to terrify moms about a snack that if they didn't, if they didn't buy the right organic snack, their kids would get sick. And the food scientist tried to explain this, this does not align with science. But the marketers would say, but it works. It works on moms of young kids. So this is where I have issue with the misogynistic leanings of this industry. Yeah. And I mean, this is sort of one of these, I tend to mention on this show, well, I have more than a few times, the whole satanic preschool panic era, right? And that it was no accident that the, I, this, this hysteria around the idea that kids were being molested in preschools with bizarre satanic rituals coincided with white middle-class, upper-middle-class women going into the workforce. So suddenly daycare centers were emerging and this was a pretty new phenomenon. And so there, this some kind of moral panic had to erupt around it in order to sort of punish mothers for daring to leave their children. And so this is kind of another version of that. Yeah, I definitely see that. And it's funny because a lot of these movements started from really radical and smart ideas. I mean, if you talk about something like clean beauty, you can see that it, the roots of it can sort of be seen at the start of domestic science, where there were really harmful ingredients and products, and women had to buy certain products to protect their family. And we did have laws that made sure that you know certain toxic ingredients or poisonous ingredients weren't in products. So it, it stems from, from a pillar of truth. The problem is, is that sometimes these ideas get manipulated into just exaggerating harm down the line and just forcing a sale on women. Yeah. And you talk about the difference between orthorexia and anorexia. So explain to us what is orthorexia. Orthorexia is essentially an obsession with healthy eating. Uh, and Okay. So it's basically like the entire West side of Los Angeles is, is orthorexic. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of, the idea is that you're supposed to have food in its more most natural state. So no processed food, no pasta. You should try to eat vegetables. You should try to eat, you know, fish, but try to stay away. Usually it, it starts with try to eat as healthy as possible, but then it becomes almost like a paranoia where some people then just start axing more and more categories. Soon they can't have anything that was ever processed, then they can't have uh, meat, then they can't have dairy, then they can't have gluten. It sort of evolves. And obviously this is not you know widespread, but the experts I spoke to talked about the fact that once clean eating became very popularized a couple of years ago, they started seeing more and more young women suffering from this. Yeah, I mean, it feels like a form of OCD. Completely. Which is what anorexia is as well in, in a lot of ways. But there was one, I mean, you have a couple anecdotes that are really remarkable. There was one, there was a woman who 
it's like she kept eliminating foods. She became so she became so obsessed with clean eating that like she got to the point where she couldn't eat anything at all. And then it was like the cleaning products and and it just it like her whole world was taken over by anxiety about not even toxins. That's that word is kind of passe now, but like it just becomes like a form of anxiety that is sort of channeled through this notion of wellness. It's really just anxiety run amok, seems like. Definitely. And for some also, there are other emotions involved. So it's a form of control. And we see this a lot with wellness rituals where people do certain things because they feel like life as it is is chaotic. And so it's a way of wielding control. And other times, you know, I spoke to some people who found meaning out of something like clean eating. You know, it made them feel virtuous and people would applaud them and say, oh, you're so great. You're eating another salad. And it gave them an identity. There are a lot of other elements that people get out of wellness beyond the health aspect. Yeah. And again, like I'm trying to figure out when it was exactly that we stopped talking about dieting and we started talking about clean eating or we, you know, like I would go into my my bar class. And suddenly it was all about strength, right? It was about, it wasn't about being thin. They would never say that. It was all about feeling strong and powerful and eating clean. And I'm trying to like, was that again, was that sort of like the 2010s? Like when did this shift occur? Uh, I don't have an exact date, but some experts I spoke to said that, you know, once the body positivity movement became more popular, a lot of editors or thought leaders within media realized they could no longer use the term diet and they could no longer, no longer talk about thinness. So they started talking about being healthy, but the imagery didn't really change, just the terminology. And in fact, I remember I did a profile piece on Weight Watchers they rebranded themselves as WW. They no longer wanted to go by Weight Watchers. And I remember the, the executive I interviewed said, yeah, we did a poll, uh, this might be like, I don't know, six years ago or whatnot, where they found out that a lot of their fans no longer wanted to diet. And the company wasn't doing well because women said, we are fed up. We are no longer willing to diet. And we are more influenced now by the body positivity movement. So what did they do? They rebranded themselves as a lifestyle brand and they went by WW. So you're not only a customer, a participant in a lot of this, you're a reporter. How did you go about reporting on this? And I'm curious about your your thoughts about how the, the media treats the wellness industry. Does it love covering it? Does it cover it too generously, not generously enough? Yeah, I make the argument that the media treats wellness like fashion at this point. There's always some new fad and they recognize how popular wellness is now. I mean, it's kind of basically the new fashion and beauty industry. So they always need something new to report on. Whether or not the new fad or the new trendy ingredient actually has any scientific evidence behind it. And I think even if people look back in the last, I don't know, eight to 10 years, I mean, I remember when I first started reporting on this, it was all about bone broth. You know, then a year later, right? Then a year later, it was coconut water. Then it was green juice. Then it was functional elixirs. Then it was kombucha. Now it's sea moss. I mean, it just keeps coming and coming and coming. And I think, you know, number one, 
people think it's fun. So I understand that. I'm not, you know, uh, judging anyone who enjoys a bottle of kombucha and wants to try these things. I'm, I'm not immune to that as well. Uh, but I think it's a lot similar to fad diets in the sense that everyone tries something, they see it doesn't work or they get exhausted by it. And they move on to the next thing. And I mean, that's why diets exist. The reason people keep moving from diet to diet is because they're unsustainable or they don't work. So they put their faith in the next best thing. So much of this industry is based on hope and belief. You want to believe in this next big product. You want to believe it'll make you feel better. Or it'll cure something. And then it doesn't. And then because we're such a hyper-optimistic nation, we just go and find the next best thing to buy. Mm. And it's so enabled by Instagram culture. I mean, how would this even be able to exist? Well, obviously not. It could not exist on this level if it weren't for social media and especially Instagram, the way these influencers have been able to become celebrities. Totally. And, you know, when you think back 20 years ago, if there was some diet influencer, maybe they wrote a book. And that book waited until you had a free moment before you went to bed or a weekend to read it. But now they can reach you several times a day on social media. They can post in the morning, the afternoon, in the evening. Better yet, you can DM with them and build a personal relationship with them. It's a completely different ballgame. But you have to also factor in what the media does. So many of these wellness trends are not being written and reported on by people who have a health or science background, or the reporters don't check with the relevant experts. And, you know, they're being written by people who treat them like they're just fashion. Oftentimes you find these stories in the style section. They're not even in the health section. And, and, and we don't even bat an, bat an eye at it. Well, so can you talk about what harms have come from some of these treatments? I mean, we, you know, we all make fun of Gwyneth Paltrow with the vaginal steaming or whatever that was. And, you know, she seems to be, she was kind of the, the first person who was in this mix and she gets made fun of a lot, but, you know, has she or anyone else actually promoted something that ended up hurting people in a real way? Well, I, I don't want to speak about specific people, but I will say that some of the messaging within wellness has greater consequence. So for example, if you make someone terrified of quote unquote chemicals, even though everything is made out of a chemical, um, they may take that message and apply them elsewhere. So I see a lot of women who take very simplistic, exaggerated teachings from the organic food industry or clean beauty and they apply it to, let's say, medicine or vaccines. You know, they'll say something like, oh, I can't take a flu vaccine or I can't take this medication because it has formaldehyde. You know, they've been made terrified of formaldehyde without even understanding that there's formaldehyde in a pear or an apple or a banana. So that's where I think it becomes dangerous that these ideas infiltrate and then we don't know where they're going to end up. So, what would be an example of something that has? objective harm. Right. So the goops of the world might publicize something like adrenal fatigue, which is not recognized by the medical establishment as a concrete condition. And the danger in that is that if people believe in adrenal fatigue and buy some sham supplement, they might be barring themselves from getting real therapeutic treatments. They might have a real issue that has a real solution. 
but they're not getting it and instead putting their faith in some dumb pill. <sighs> wow. But at the same time, you talk a lot about how traditional medicine really is, is still excluding women. I mean, it, until very recently, medical trials and studies were done on men because it was assumed that women's hormonal fluctuations just made them bad, bad case studies, right? Bad subjects. Right. And it, and it was just cheaper and easier. <laughs> yeah, exa exactly. Right. Because you don't have to time stuff around menstrual cycles and all of that. And so, and yeah, and you have a couple of stories, really harrowing stories of women who were ignored by their doctors again and again and again and had serious things wrong with them. And so you're really, you're, we're stuck between a rock and a hard place because especially with the healthcare system being the way it is, I've certainly gone to see doctors and been shocked at how little attention they pay to anything. And I'm not the kind of person who goes looking for that kind of fight. Yeah, completely. I don't make the case that there's a solution for everything. A ton of women's conditions are under-researched and underfunded. Uh, but this idea that just because uh, the medical establishment doesn't have solutions, alternative health or bunk does is ridiculous. That That's kind of the, you know, we don't know. It's funny. The more you learn about health and medicine, you also realize how much we don't know and how much more information we need. But too often, a lot of these wellness brands are taking advantage of women's pain and vulnerability. They're capitalizing on the fact that there isn't an easy solution for many of these conditions. And I think also, you know, I mentioned a doctor who had an, who had one sort of theory about why people put their faith in supplements, which is that, you know, people think about antibiotics, where you take this one pill for this one specific condition and magically everything gets better. And then people think there's a pill or an easy solution for anything. And oftentimes with a lot of these chronic conditions, it's not one thing that's a solution. It's very, very complex. But you know what? If you are presented with two ideas, you're being told by a doctor, this is far more complicated. This might take years. We don't know. And then there's someone else coming from alternative health saying, I have the answer. It's really simple. Drink this juice. Take this pill. You can understand why someone might fall for the latter. Yeah. And like, who are these alternative health people? Because any kind of interaction I've had with these sorts, I'm always amazed, like, how do you believe that you know more than a doctor? Like, how does somebody get to this point where they have such confidence in what they're doing? It, I guess they are just, it is almost like they're in a kind of cult and they are spreading the word. Well, I don't know that they're in a cult per se. I, I th oh, that's a hard, okay, that's a harsh term, but they, but they, it's a belief system. To some degree, I also have a lot of empathy. I think when you're this desperate and you're in this much pain, you'll kind of try anything. And I think that people can also be fooled by anecdotal evidence. You hear someone say it worked for me, and so you automatically assume it'll work for you. That's just not necessarily true. Yeah, it's it's really, really difficult. I know a ton of smart, educated people who believe in alternative health. And by the way, there are some solutions that might alleviate pain. You know, I don't want to paint with too wide a brush, but more or less, I see a, a lot of bunk, a lot of stuff that has very paltry scientific evidence. But again, I have a lot of empathy. And I think everyone needs to have empathy for people who are truly suffering. 
Oh, it, and I wasn't actually referring to the patients. I'm talking about the providers, like how somebody oh. who somebody who you go into an alternative health clinic and they like say, I'm going to take your blood. And then they like look at your blood under a microscope and tell you that you need to do a like liver detox with these juices and supplements because of something that they saw under a microscope that you could <laughs> buy at a children's <laughs> toy store. Like it's, and like, they're just, you know, God is, they have a straight face. And I just, my question is like, how did you get to the point where you believe this about yourself that you can diagnose something in this manner? Yeah, there's two different kinds. There are some people who really truly believe in this and they've just been exposed to the wrong information. Um, or they just fall in line with a certain type of thinking that sounds right. And I actually see this a lot by media as well. They just assume natural is better. Even though nature is filled with arsenic, poisonous mushrooms, I mean, you name it. I mean, but there is sometimes these fallacies that work on people. And then you have the people who are really taking advantage of people who I suspect know these things are bunk, but it's a great way to make a sale. And these are the people who are sending, who are selling sham supplements, let's say. And it's actually kind of funny because, you know, the rhetoric often within these circles is like, oh, the medical establishment is just trying to sell you pharmaceuticals. They want you to be dependent on them. Right. And then they copy the same exact format, but with supplements. <laughs> or detoxes or juices, whatever it is, it's the same thing, but they use the right terminology about freedom, liberation, thinking for yourself, doing your own research. Uh, and that's what gets consumers hooked because they're using really engaging language. And I, I mentioned one point in the book, um, Carl Elliott, uh, he wrote this amazing book called, I believe called Better Than Well, where he talks about the fact that terms like liberation and freedom these are terms that Americans just love. And anything that's couched in that type of language, we fall for. Are these American trends? Do, do we see this kind of wellness culture in Europe, for instance? Well, yeah, I would say that a lot of these trends have been globalized. But from the researchers I spoke to, it's at its peak in America. And that's because America have certain traits that primed us for it. Number one, as we already know, we just don't have the best healthcare system. It's often inaccessible, frustrating. People are barred from it. But there are other things that are specifically American. We're hyper-individualistic, which is why everyone's told to handle their health and wellness on their own. Um, we're stressed. We have no work-life balance. When you are so stressed, you don't necessarily have the time to think through all of the complications or to really analyze what you're buying. We're hyper-consumerist. We're a country that loves to shop. You're never going to stop us from shopping. But also, we're such a highly optimistic nation, meaning we love a quick fix. And we, you know, we're the nation that put the man on the moon. We built Hollywood, you know, the city of dreams. And we kind of have the same mentality sometimes when it comes to our health. Unfortunately, the flip side of optimism is gullibility. Right. You put, you put all these things together, and that's how you get our wellness industry. You know, I spoke to a researcher from Italy who, when I asked, you know, you know, what's the wellness industry like in Italy, kind of laughed at me and said, <laughs> you know, we get six weeks mandated vacation. We take two hour lunches. We have a good healthcare system. Like we don't need wellness. Like you guys need wellness. Yeah. And they also have a Mediterranean diet. I was amazed by some of these details about just the way food has changed. You say the average bagel went from three inches in diameter 
140 calories to six inches in diameter, 350 calories in the last 20 years. Like that little detail, it's very memorable, I must say. Yeah, we eat more, you know, that's really the sum of it. And we're also surrounded by processed food that's not necessarily healthy for us. And I don't blame families or women for buying it because who has time to make ultra nutritious meals? You know, I get frustrated sometimes when I hear people talk about, you know, the fact that we just need to build supermarkets and food deserts and get, you know, access to people who are, you know, don't necessarily have access to vegetables. Well, will they have time to cook it and to prepare it? It's it's not an easy answer. Well, and again, this is one of those things you people even even back decades ago, people started to not trust the food system. So women had to cook at home and really up the ante and be a sort of guard, you know, the guardrails to protect their families, you know, protecting against Mm -hmm. bad stuff in in foods, whether it was actual chemicals or just stuff that's unhealthy. And it's so interesting the way, again, it it, it feeds on itself, right? So it's like, you're gonna, you know, you want to be healthy, you want to look good, but in order to achieve those things, you actually have to do more more work. You can't go out and buy prepackaged food. You have to prepare it yourself, supposedly. And then that just adds to your work day. There's, there's absolutely no way to get this right, I guess is what I'm saying. Well, I think you could take a moderate approach. Like you're not going to drop dead if you have pasta or fish sticks. Like, I, you know, this is where I see sometimes this becoming an obsessive lifestyle or some ways for women to judge other women. You don't have to eat salads and fresh food at every meal. You can kind of just, you know, take it easy a little bit. And, you know, I have some very interesting anecdotes from here in LA of people who feel like they're just constantly being judged for what they feed their kids. Say more about that. Oh, you know, I had a friend who told me that, you know, she and her husband and, and kids once got in the car and they were going to a birthday party and they saw a bunch of balloons uh, tied to a mailbox. So they went in and they're sitting down and they're looking around and they're realizing they don't recognize anyone. Like no one's there from their kid's class. And then my friend, you know, grabs her husband's arm, turns to him and says, oh my God. We're at the wrong party. <laughs> They're pouring Coca-Cola. And then she adds, no one we know would drink Coca-Cola. Now a word from our sponsor, BetterHelp. Have you ever wondered why BetterHelp sponsors so many podcasts, especially the really smart ones like this? Maybe because we like to think about problems, the problems of the world, as well as our own personal problems. But it's easy to just analyze endlessly rather than taking steps to actually solve things. And when you're ready to take that step, a good therapist can really help. Now, if you listen to this show a lot, you've probably heard me talking about my own struggles these last couple of years. Struggles with creativity, with getting older, with losing my mind over do-it-yourself audio engineering. I could probably use some therapy. Some of my listeners have gently suggested as much. but. Honestly, I can't imagine fitting therapy into my life right now. And that's why BetterHelp is such an innovative and valuable tool. It's private counseling from licensed therapists that you connect with online. You fill out a brief survey and get matched with a therapist that you can meet with over video, on the phone, or even in an online chat. 
You don't even have to turn your camera on if you don't want to. It's all confidential. You can switch therapists at any time. And needless to say, it's much more affordable than regular therapy. When you want to become a better problem solver, therapy can get you there. Visit betterhelp.com slash unspeakable today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash unspeakable. And now back to the conversation. No one we know would drink Coca-Cola. <laughs> now, this friend is obviously someone who would, you know, is not afraid of sugar. But the point she was trying to make was that she is in a school environment where everyone's terrified of sugar and everyone's afraid of having cake or Coca-Cola. And, you know, it basically becomes like a one-upmanship. and Yeah, well, it's a cultural, it's a signifier, right? It's a class signifier. Yeah, and but the thing is, is like, this is what I was talking about earlier, where it does spring from some truth. Of course, you know, we don't want to only be drinking, you know, uh, candy bars and Coca-Cola. Of course, we want to have healthier food. But this idea that, you know, oh my gosh, you, you'd be shocked to see it at, at a birthday party, you know, is that's where, you know, you might be like, uh, are, are we overdoing it a bit? That's so funny. That way they didn't like notice that the, it's, did the person's house look like not the kind of house their friends would have? It's that the, the Coca-Cola, I find it hard to believe that would be like the one thing that would tip them off because that's such a great story. You also have a great story about the Kardashian um, oh, yeah. sisters. <laughs> they had um, dueling, they had a birthday party feud, uh, if you want to uh, tell that story. Yeah, I love that story. And yes, I watch Keeping Up with the Kardashians. I, I've been watching it for over a decade. But uh, yeah, the Kim Kardashian and her elder sister, Courtney wanted to have a joint Candyland-themed birthday party. And Game Candyland. Just, uh, it, and that game is still around. That actually is also amazing. But yeah, okay. Uh, yeah. so our, in case our audience is not familiar, this is a board game. Uh, very, <laughs> very simple. It's not a high, it's not an advanced level board game, but yes. Okay. Candyland themed birthday party. Yes. And, you know, they were in their car talking about how they're going to plan this birthday party. And essentially, Courtney said, oh, well, I don't really want to have any candy there. You know, can we have some salads, maybe some carrots? Salad land is a good game, too. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and Kim was like, I feed my kids healthy all the time. For their birthday, I'm going to give them some candy. It is Candyland-themed. There's no way you can do a Candyland-themed birthday without actual candy. And they fought and fought over it. And viewers such as myself can tell when a fight is real or when it's manufactured. We can tell the difference at this point. And it was a real fight. They were screaming at each other. At one point, Kim threatened to hit her sister in the face with a pinata. And what ended up happening? They couldn't come to a consensus and they decided to have separate parties. And it sounds like an extreme example, but being here in LA, I will tell you that it's the idea of what to feed your kids has become so heightened that, I, that I'm not surprised by it. Yeah. And again, and again, it, it stems from real truths. People want to feed their kids healthy stuff, but when are you taking it too far? Well, and aren't the kids going to rebel? I mean, that's the problem, right? Yes. It's, it's so funny because I think. Courtney just gave an interview recently. And by the way, I apologize to everyone who's like, I really don't want to listen about the Kardashians. This is the first time the Kardashians <laughs> have been mentioned on this show probably in two years. So it's fine. I think that we, we got a lot of runway okay. here. So go, yeah. go for it. 
But she gave an interview recently where I think she said that her son Mason said, oh, mom, I would just love to have fries from McDonald's or something of that sort, you know, just once in my life. And she was like, it's never going to happen, buddy. And I was like, wow, so much pitch a show that's basically just when that kid turns 18 and he kind of goes like on, uh, what's that? Like Amish- room, room right, right, yeah. And he just goes nuts. <laughs> like, I want to watch that show. That would be a good marketing campaign for McDonald's too, you know, for that, for your, for your room spring, a fast food year. Yeah. Yeah. I just, I I feel like we're in danger of just moralizing food. Like there's good foods and bad foods and just taking it too far. And of course there are preferable foods. There's a difference. Like sure, we should be eating more vegetables, but like don't shame anyone or make them afraid of, of having a donut. The status thing or like, or, you know, but like a Dunkin' Donut doesn't have as much status as some kind of like special, even a Krispy Kreme donut has like a, like a kind of camp kitsch aspect to it. Like it's, it's it, these, there's always like a, a spe- spectrum here. You can go to some kind of bespoke donut shop and that's okay somehow. Yes, but there is to some degree to some people who are using it as status, but there are actually people who have been made fearful of these things. Oh, for sure. Yeah. You know, it's legitimate to them. Yeah. I'm actually, I I grew up uh, being told that it takes 24 hours to digest one donut. And so I have never eaten an entire donut since then. (laughs) I'll eat like, I'll eat like seven eighths of it. then throw the the remaining one eighth away. And so, oh, I, I'll, I'll digest this. And- oh my God. I have so many disordered eating habits. It drives my husband crazy, but I will not, if I order a sandwich, I'll eat everything but the bread because I once went on Atkins when I was 18 years old and made terrified of bread. And he'll say to me, Rena, you eat cookies and ice cream. Why won't you eat bread? And I said, I was just made terrified of it. I, I'm afraid to eat bread. We could do a whole show on strange, um, disordered eating, you know, borderline disordered eating habits. But, you know, let's talk about something like the Fitbit. I actually have never had a Fitbit. It doesn't appeal to me. I'm, I'm a very late adopter. I never get technology until it's like already completely in the past. But, you know, part of the reason is I just don't, I don't want to add that extra layer of anxiety to my day. But um, you talk about one woman in particular who the Fitbit really sort of uh, did her in. Yeah. Basically, she was using her Fitbit. And at first, it was really, really fun. She enjoyed tracking her progress. But then she became almost obsessed with it, where if she didn't meet you know, her sort of marker for the day of how much she had to exercise – then she would punish herself. And, you know, I give the story of how, you know, if her boyfriend just out of the blue said, hey, we should go out to dinner, she would freak out because she would say, oh, but I, then I need to work out more and I didn't have time to do it. And she, it, she started actually living her life according to her Fitbit. Now, that's an extreme case. There is such a thing as fitness OCD. It's very rare. But, you know, even in small ways, I see people now freaking out over their sleep stats where, you know, they wake up, they feel fine, but then they look at their stats and they're like, oh, wait, I didn't get the perfect sleep that I thought I did. And then they feel bad about themselves. And even myself, a personal example, uh, I used to have a fitness tracker that I used to depend on when I used to go to the gym, specifically Orange Theory. 
And again, it was fun for me at first, but then I started becoming obsessed with it. And if I didn't feel like I got enough points or if I didn't feel like I burned enough calories, I felt like I was a failure. And it started taking away the enjoyment. And there's actually been studies that show that, that it can potentially reduce your enjoyment. And isn't that part of working out for some people? It is for me. And I think you hear this a lot from people that they want to work out for like a mental health release. Like they just, you know, want to move their body and feel like they're getting a release. But when you're tracking everything, it can have the opposite effect where you're stressed about whether or not you did something good enough. Oh, God. Yeah. So what exercise do you like best? What do you do now? I run. I love running. It's therapeutic for me, but I do not track how far I run. I'm, I've really eased up on it. I used to be really strict. I had to do five miles a day and it had to be done within a certain amount of time. I don't do that anymore because it started making me feel bad. And oftentimes people say, oh, Rena, you run so much, you should do a race. And I say, oh, no, that would really ruin it for me. And that's not to say it's like that for everyone, but I think in wellness, in health, you really need to find what works for you. Otherwise, you're never going to stick with it. And so a relaxed approach to running is what I do now. But if you spoke to me six, seven years ago, I went to a boutique fitness gym every single day. I ran every day. I did yoga three times a week. And I did a cardio workout every day. I mean, I was obsessed. And is that, were you always like that? I mean, were you, was it about looking a certain way? What was driving it? Oh, definitely. I, uh, it was definitely about looking a certain way. I think the older I got, the more I became terrified uh, about my looks, about my body. You know, I was worried about ageism within the media industry. And so I felt like I had to look a certain way, even just to keep my job or, you know, especially dating in New York City. I never thought I was going to be able to find someone unless I looked a certain way. So a lot of it was fear-based. And do you think it was justified? I mean, it's it would be easy for someone to say, oh, that's not true, but um, it's also sort of true. That's the problem, right? Uh, it was for me. It was for me. I mean, I, I can, <sighs> this is a whole other topic, but when I started dating in New York City versus once the apps came on the scene, it was a whole different ballgame. Oh, so, okay. But I, I don't, how old are you now? Am I allowed to ask that? 40. Okay. Yeah. Okay. 40. So you're like 10 years younger than I am. Cause I mean, I was going to ask like, what, it, how did you grow up? Like, what did you grow up eating? Um, were you in a family that was very conscious about healthy eating? Like what, what, what's your sort of history with this? I think I grew up like an average 80s kid. You know, I grew up on fruit roll-ups and, you know, uh, sugary cereal and I didn't think much of it. I, I think it was more that once I was in my 30s, I became more conscientious about aging. Uh, but also, you know, the wellness industry became bigger. And so I started accepting all this messaging about how I have to be super fit and I have to be healthy. And a lot of the rhetoric around being healthy was infused with morality or purpose. It became sort of a social signifier. You know, if I showed up to brunch in a workout gear and said I was going to class, people would applaud you and be like, oh my God, that's so amazing. You're so good. I, there was a lot. It wasn't just one thing. It was multifactorial. Mm -hmm. 
this is so interesting. And then like the body positivity movement comes along and that's just this like bizarre cognitive dissonance, right? Because the more we have these messages saying, oh, you know, there's, you can, there's fat acceptance and there's all types of bodies at the same time, all this other stuff is getting more intense. Yeah. And I also worked in media, so it was just different for me, you know, and I just saw the way female anchors were treated. It, it was different for me. I felt really impacted by pressures that said I had to look and be a certain way. And I, I definitely think I've gotten be better over the last few years, but you know, I can't even blame the wellness industry. I grew up on fashion magazines. You know, I grew up during the Kate Moss era. I mean, it's really, really hard to pinpoint one thing that made me this way. Yeah, no. And it's, it's, this book was so fascinating because I was thinking about, so when I, I grew up, like, you know, I was a teenager in the eighties. And so it was, if you were going to like care about your weight, it was about rice cakes and like crystal light drink mix and every, super chemically artificial, like styrofoam kind of foods. And I'm trying to, it didn't, it wasn't, I don't think it like became part of your personality. Like it wasn't, it wasn't a lifestyle as much. Like there was aerobics and there was rice cakes and it was kind of a sucky way to live, but it didn't, it wasn't, um, it wasn't a, a whole culture or it was a culture, but it wasn't nearly as all encompassing as this. And there wasn't a sort of moral component. I mean, you know, there's definitely a sense that, you know, that it was better. You were a better person if you were thin but it just didn't have the dimensions that it seemed to later develop. Yeah, now it's part of mainstream culture, you know, to a severe degree. I mean, open up any women's magazine and any interview with a female celebrity, with, you know, an actress or a singer or an influencer, they ask questions about like, uh, what are your, what's your wellness routine? And well, you know, the celebrity will go on and on about how when they wake up in the morning, the first thing they do is they meditate and then they, they write in their gratitude journal and what they eat. But I don't even believe that. When you read that, do you believe it? I just feel like, well, they had to say something. Do you think they really do that? I think they might have the time to do it, you know, and that's the other. I mean, I think they do maybe one of those things or they do that a couple of days a week. Yeah, you're probably right. They're probably exaggerating it because it sounds good. But I remember, you know, 10, 15 years ago, you'd open up a magazine. They'd ask, you know, what music do you listen to or, or what beauty products do you use? Now it's really about their wellness routines. And, and that that's kind of new. And, and the thing is, is that Sure, it's great if you could squeeze and exercise and eat more nutritious, but a lot of people don't have the time for it or they don't have the money for it. There are so many things that are barring people from this type of lifestyle. And that's to some degree what it's become a lifestyle. Right, right. There's also a, an amazing quote. You quote um, an exercise physiologist named Dr. Stephen Loy. And you know, he talks about, again, he says 20 years ago, a thin body was what was being pushed, but you didn't see the muscle. Now you see, see the same thin body, but it's got muscles that you can see. So they've, they've raised the bar on you. And like, you look at like the seventies, you know, people were really skinny, but it was not having muscles was like, not really a thing. Um, maybe even until sort of Madonna 
came came along and looking all muscly. Yeah, you know, I make the joke, although it's a real joke that, you know, you kind of yearn for the days where you just had to be thin. Now you have to be thin and toned and muscular and you have to have a big butt. You know, it's it's so many pressures coming at us. And it's because people, you know, see celebrities, you know, like, I don't know, let's say some Marvel superhero character who obviously had six hours with a trainer to be able to do that. The same goes for fitfluencers on Instagram. You know, they make it seem as if it's just a matter of scheduling in, you know, half an hour of exercise a day. You know, we're not privy to how much they work on that, how much it costs. The average person just can't do this. Right. Yeah. And, you know, I remember there was a really interesting quote from uh, Matt Weiner, the creator of Mad Men. He talked about this concept of period bodies. So like, you know, what bodies would have looked like in in the 1960s, women's bodies. And they weren't muscly. Like it was, you know, part of the continuity on that show. You didn't see like a lot of super fit toned, beautiful women. They were thin for sure, but it was a different kind of thing. It was a thinness that came about from living on coffee and cigarettes. Yeah. And it's actually funny uh, that there's now doctors reporting that they find all these young women who have all these bizarre back injuries and complaints that are more in line with senior citizens' complaints. And it's because they're doing too many butt exercises. They feel pressure to have a big butt. And if they're not going to get, if they're not going to do it via surgery, then they're trying to do it, you know, through fitness, but you know, they can take it too far. Oh my God. That is one of these things that I don't understand. This is like the, the fitness version of like not understanding choking in, in, in sex. It's like, I don't, I'm, I'm of this generation where I don't understand choking in sexual encounters. And I don't understand the big butt thing because in my time, it was you were not supposed to have a big butt at all. Yeah, but if you're young and you're online and you're inundated with this stuff, I don't know. I really feel for younger generations who are growing up with social media. It cannot be easy. Yeah. I, I mean, I just, yeah, that that applies across many, many metrics. So, you know, what kind of, where are you at this point? You know, you've done all this research, you've, you've been through your own journey with this. Do you see this changing anytime soon? Or are we kind of stuck in this mode for a while? I already see both the consumer and the industry changing. I think coming out of the pandemic, there was so much of a focus on misinformation that it really propelled a certain sector of women to press pause and really try to figure out where they're getting their health misinformation and whether they're being lied to. That's one part of it. The second is, is that I just see a lot of exhaustion. You know, I have a lot of women tell me, oh yeah, wellness, been there, done that. It didn't really solve anything. You know, at this point, I know so many women who have a beauty cabinet filled to the brim with like this CBD cream, that supplement, this ridiculous product. It didn't work. <laughs> and vitamin it, C serum, you're telling me that doesn't work that I pay $200 for every periodically? <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I don't know enough about that, but you know, there there is to some extent this idea of like, you know what, I'm not buying all the marketing that much going forward, you know, kind of, you know, fool me once Gwyneth, you know, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. So there is a little bit of a pause before buying all in on a product. People are not drinking the Kool-Aid as much, but also the industry is changing because Gen Z 
really hates this stuff. They hate the productivity pressures of wellness. And they hate the whole, you know, perfect acai bowl, like I'm going to eat this perfect avocado toast. They see that perfectionist productivity pressure mandate associated with sort of the girl boss millennial era. And so I hear, you know, Gen Zers tell me, yeah, I'm going to eat some goldfish crackers and nothing's going to happen to me. I'm not a millennial. So this is like norm core, <laughs> kind of kind norm core of. eating. Yeah. Um, but also they put a bigger emphasis on mental health and they don't see this preoccupation and the, this obsessiveness being psychologically healthy. And they're right. And so, you know, I did a piece for the LA Times uh, in the summer about how you're seeing brands now kind of move a little bit away from the cure-all health claims because younger generations can't stand it. And so you'll see potato chip companies come and say, yeah, we're just a potato chip and we're yummy. We're not going to pretend to be super healthy for you. Oh, that's interesting. Is this part of the macaroni and cheese um, being served at like a high-end restaurants too? Or that that's kind of predates this. I noticed there's just like, that's a big item. No, I don't know about that, but I applaud it. Yeah. And then just the last thing is that we have a lot more scientists, uh, medical influencers, and experts in their fields getting on social media and battling misinformation. You have a lot more science-based influencers who are debunking the wellness influencers. And that's making a dent as well. You see them especially on TikTok. So there is a slight course correction underway. That being said, there are certain groups of people who are more preyed upon than others. So uh, baby boomers, um, people who are dealing with chronic conditions, uh, moms of kids with special needs. But I do see a, a little bit of kind of like a de-escalation. And it's kind of like how, you know, every day there used to be some crazy goopish product and you don't see them as much. Like, I can't remember the last time I saw an activated charcoal product, you know, marketed to me. Now, of course, there are other trends like CMOS or whatnot, but, you know, there, there is kind of like a mellowing out. What is the CMOS trend? I only heard about that the other day. What's that uh, about? I don't know. It's like in face masks and juices. I almost can't keep up with them at this point. But I do know this, that a lot of my friends who would be like, oh, I should go try that are now like, yeah, I'm not doing that anymore. What is your wellness regime now? You say you, you run. What else do you do? I watch an episode of 30 Rock or Seinfeld a day. Uh, While uh, being on your Peloton? <laughs> no, I, I'm a big believer that humor is part of my wellness. I mean, wellness is so subjective and it's so personalized. So this, you know, everyone needs to find what works for them. And a lot of the wellness industry is just finding what works for you and just really prioritizing being with people and being with friends and family. I think, you know, I talk a lot about in the book that communal support, socialization is just one of the biggest pillars of wellness and no one talks about it enough, primarily because there's not money to really be made in it. You know, just telling people to go and be with their friends. But uh, that to me is crucial. And I think that, you know, it's not easy. You know, have you ever tried to get a bunch of friends together for dinner? It's not simple. <laughs> uh, but th only if you're going from your yoga class, I notice if like, oh, you know, we'll we'll meet at yoga and then we'll go out after. Sometimes that works. <laughs> yeah, but that's really it for me. It's very simple and pared down now, and that doesn't mean that I don't buy like a bath bomb or some ridiculous product every now and then. I mean, I love kombucha, but I just I don't give it that much stock. And I don't believe all the health claims. I buy these things just because I enjoy them. Mm -hmm. 
And so like, what, what do you eat? Do you have a certain diet that you follow or you just are intuitive now? No. Yeah. I don't, uh, I don't have a diet. I eat a lot of tacos. Uh, I eat salads. I just, I, I don't drive myself crazy anymore. And I did used to drive myself crazy. I did clean eating. It gave me disordered eating. I was living off of baby food for a while. <laughs> you know, like I've I've been through all of it. Oh, and- wait a second. Let's go back to this because <laughs> you give an example of somebody. Oh, was that you or was it yes. somebody else? Oh, that was you. Yeah, you were. Okay. Actually, yes. Before we wrap up, let's hear this because you were doing something, a story that involved getting shipped small packages of baby food. Yes. And I was in the middle of trying out clean eating and I'm pretty forthcoming that I did it because I wanted to lose weight for my wedding. And I thought of clean eating because more or less everyone promised you, you would lose weight by it. They didn't say it outright, but it was like pretty obvious, you know? And when they talked about clean eating, it was always accompanied by like perfect svelte bodies. And it was really, really difficult primarily because I didn't have time to cook all of these vegetables and salads and prepare them. And it just became simpler to eat it out of a jar. <laughs> and uh, one time my husband came into the kitchen and saw me eating baby food and was like, okay, this, this has to stop. This is, this is going too far. <laughs> and he still married me. <laughs> so ultimately, what are you hoping people will take away from this book? Just chill out? Do you want to Take get Gwyneth Paltrow out of business. What, what's your what's your agenda? I don't think I can get Gwyneth Paltrow out of business, and I don't think she cares what I have to say or what anyone has to say. I hope that women can be more relaxed about their health. They don't need to fetishize it. They don't need to buy all of these tools and go on all of these retreats. And they also shouldn't blame themselves if they can't do everything that's marketed to them. There's a lot of shame, and it doesn't have to be that way. Right. Right. And it's really, again, I, it's, it's a tyranny. Like it actually keeps you from doing your work. It's one of those things, like it's, it's really counterproductive. Yeah. And I, I mean, I've spoken to so many mothers who, if one of their kid gets sick, they blame themselves. They say, oh, it's because, you know, I used to give them pasta for dinner. Oh, it's because I gave them dairy. All of these things. And I mean, I, I don't hear men and fathers blaming themselves like this. It's women. And it's because women are targeted. And it's not fair and it's not right. And they do it to each other. They shame each other. This is a circular firing squad a little bit. Yeah. But I have one thing to say about this, which is that, you know, I did a little bit of research into, for example, why do women judge each other's nutritious choices so much? What's that all about? And I spoke to some researchers who said, when women are in a pressure cooker, when women do not feel like they have a safety net, they are basically expressing their frustration and they take it out on each other. Mm-hmm. And, and I wonder if there is something to that. When you are so stressed and you feel like you have no support, then of course you don't have a time to necessarily think through all of your actions or your reactions and, and you just lose it. I think that's what's happening. The stress thing fascinates me because I'm completely overworked, like for the last couple of years. And You're not <laughs> I, haven't turned to, I haven't turned to wellness, but um, <laughs> I, I feel this. Uh, yeah. 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 And I, I mean, I, this is a sort of a whole other conversation, but I think it's interesting that the body positivity movement is almost totally around women's bodies. Like we're walking into a target and seeing plus size mannequins, but we never see 
like male mannequins that are like scrawny and short. Yeah. Well, historically, that's because women's bodies have always been scrutinized and women were often you know, judged by how they look, whereas men had more avenues for being judged. It was more about their profession or whatnot. And to this day, women are still judged by how they look. So, oh yeah. Again, the, these are things that are just really difficult to eradicate. Yeah, no, I don't think they can be. Actually, not not altogether. And you can't blame women when they just give in. Yeah. No, because it's that it's you know there's the feeling that you that you owe it to yourself. What's the point of working so hard in my career if I'm going to just sabotage it by? not looking good enough to achieve the highest level. Yeah, but but also because you're judged by it. I mean, I think people judge people by their body size. And so if you're in a highly competitive environment within dating, within your work world, you are going to try to get anything that will give you that leg up. And so sometimes having that, you think that having that svelte body will give you that leg up. I mean, I know that from my career, I, I would have people tell me, you know, at NBC, oh, you're, you're, so, uh, you're so cute and so thin, you should be on camera. Well, you know, you internalize messaging like that and say, well, gosh, I better make sure to never get ugly and fat because then I, I won't get these opportunities anymore. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, this is, this is a problem that, that never goes away. Well, Rena, congratulations on the book. It's really, really well-researched, um, very thoroughly reported and just really engaging. I, um, I enjoyed it and I learned a lot. So I can tell you, I can tell you worked hard on it and, um, the, the we can have a whole other conversation sometime about what it's like to publish a book these days, but, Ugh. but you have done so <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, good luck. I hope people buy a lot of copies because they should. Thank you. It was lovely chatting with you. That was my conversation with Rena Raphael. Rena is a journalist who covers health, wellness, and women's issues. She's written for places like Fast Company, The New York Times, The LA Times, and Men's Health. Her new book, The Gospel of Wellness, was just published by Henry Holt. This is The Unspeakable Podcast, now on Substack at megandaum.substack.com, as I have told you too many times already. It is also everywhere you normally get your podcasts. Nothing has changed. Please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, wherever, if you're so inclined. Please also check out my new podcast with Sarah Hader, A Special Place in Hell. That's on Substack and also everywhere else. If you're still listening to this, I will tell you that my new community for free-thinking women, The Unspeakeasy, is getting up and running in the form of retreats. There's a retreat next month, October 25th through 28th in Stony Point, New York, which is very close to being filled. But if you're interested, go to theunspeakeasy.com and check it out. We're going to do more of those next year, hopefully on the West Coast and elsewhere. So really exciting things coming. That's it for now. I'll be back next week with another super nuanced guest. Thanks for listening. See you next time.